Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Michael Jessen on the show today from Zaki's Wine Auctions. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, Levy. Good to be here. Great Thanks to see me. you. Uh, you're just back from Hong Kong. How was the show? Uh, great sale. We uh, had one of the most interesting and most uh, successful auctions that we've had in Hong Kong. Very unique sale that was single owner collection, very dominated by Burgundy uh, and other unusual wines that aren't typically uh, we don't typically feature in Hong Kong. It was kind of a it was kind of a turning point, if you will, sort of a a next step, and it really underscored uh, the connoisseur base that's been developing there. So we saw prices that uh, world record prices for a lot of wines, a lot of wines, uh, especially more esoteric Burgundies and Rhones and what have you that. Maybe a year, year and a half ago, we wouldn't have featured in auctions in Hong Kong, but uh, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of fervor, and like I said, we walked away with one of the strongest sales we've ever had. So how would you describe the Hong Kong market to maybe some of the buyers in, in the American market who have never been to Hong Kong or seen what that's about? What's going on over there? You know, actually, that's a very good question because I find there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about the nature of Hong Kong and what's happening in Hong Kong, especially with wine. Uh the best way to characterize the Hong Kong market is it's actually it's actually more it's more two or three different markets that uh, are being catered to, especially for at the auction level. Okay, it's um, you have the mainland Chinese, you have the indigenous Hong Kong buyers, which could be Hong Kong Chinese, or uh, there's a huge expatriate community there, of course, Australians, Americans, the British, of course. Uh, and then there's everybody else uh, of the Far East, the Japanese, uh, 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 Taiwan, Singapore, etc. So Hong Kong has developed into the hub servicing uh, really those multiple markets. So it's not just simply one of the misconceptions is it's just wealthy, new money, mainland Chinese coming in, buying their little fee, buying their Petrus and walking out. It's actually that's certainly part of it. Uh, but there is a uh, I would I would say the core of the market is driven by real knowledgeable, passionate uh, connoisseur base. That tends to be more the indigenous Hong Kong clientele, but you got to realize it's a very westernized, very international uh, city, and the the wine knowledge, wine experience has, has been there for years and years. It's only recently that basically they've been able to get the wine in without having to pay exorbitant duties. 
So it's it's really the changes with the taxes that have had a huge impact on the development of the market. And because I think a lot of times uh, the picture is painted almost like there are country bumpkins out there with a lot of money, like the Beverly Hillbillies or something. But you're saying there's actually real connoisseurship going on and people should understand that. Yes, just as much as you would find anywhere else in the world. In fact, uh, if you have the opportunity, anybody who has the opportunity to spend any time there and gets involved with some of the wine happenings in Hong Kong, you'll quickly learn that they're as geeky, passionate, focused, interested, knowledgeable experiences, really anybody else you're going to run into. Uh, they travel, they they do the wine region visits. And again, I'm talking more about the indigenous Hong Kong clientele. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really a lot of fun. They, they really, the, I, the, the encouraging thing is the core of the market is driven by a buying base that really doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's... It's uh, for those of us that like to get swept swept up in that passion. It's really a lot of fun to spend time with them. So if they know what they're doing, why are they paying so much money for the wine? I guess is my question. That's a very good question because going back to the tax issue, what happened um, in basically late 07, early 2008, the import duties in Hong Kong went from basically 80% to zero. Mm-hmm. They stepped it down. It went went from 80 to 40, 40 to zero, but very, very quickly within the matter of a few months. So actually from their perspective, at least in, at that period of time, all of a sudden a lot of these wines appeared to be quote-unquote cheap. Uh-huh. The ability to get them in without paying the duties. And not what, what was happening is most of the – and there are there have been collectors who have been buying wines for decades, mm-hmm. but they've been keeping them in the UK, you know, London storage or New York storage or – Maybe a little bit would come into, if they really wanted it, would come into Hong Kong. Because they didn't want to pay the taxes. They didn't want to pay the taxes. And um, so actually, if you look at it from that perspective, when when the uh, market sort of bumped with the repeal of the taxes, looking at it from their perspective, a lot of wines became, again, quote unquote, cheap. So you talked about uh, this last sale and there being a lot of Burgundy and Rhone lots going, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people often think about the Chinese market as a whole as being a, a very focused on Bordeaux. Is is that uh, a change? Are, are we misreading what's going on over there, or is there a development happening? What's going on? Uh, Bordeaux is still strong. I think what happened is with the first, uh, you know, the first auctions that started in 2008, ours, our first Hong Kong auction was October 2008. Um, there was... A lot of excitement, uh, wine auctions in Hong Kong. It wasn't necessarily the first time there had been auctions in Hong Kong, but it was the first time on, on that scale. It came at the right time with taxes being repealed. The wines were available in Hong Kong. And you could probably say that it was Bordeaux that was most understood at the time. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where we sort of play in uh, the mainland Chinese buyers, some of the other buyers in the Far East. Like I said, even at that time, the I think the, the core of the Hong Kong-based buyers Yes, they wanted their Bordeaux. They knew Bordeaux. They knew, but they they were also very knowledgeable about Burgundy, uh, Rhones, other regions. But Bordeaux uh, be, has always been the centerpiece of auction, mm-hmm. and uh, it just kind of happened that the sales were dominated by great Bordeaux cases of Petrus, Lafitte, of course, First Growth. Uh, you know the high value, highly sought after wines. Um, so I think ultimately. You know, the auction houses, including us, sort of built the sales heavy on Bordeaux, knowing that was what was most understood. And again, that was also, I think that's, even to this day, that's what the mainland Chinese, who were at that time 
probably the most financially stable. They most understood Bordeaux, and uh, that really led to quite a chase chase of Bordeaux. But you know, prices of Bordeaux are still, <clears throat> excuse me, to this day, uh, historically speaking, very high. I think what also happened is that there was a realization that those wines sort of come up a lot. They're not as it's not that they're uh, uh, you know the production of Lafitte or you know the Cheval Blancs, Petrus. It's not that in absolute terms are that high, but relative to obviously you know DRC wines or other Burgundies or other hard to find wines, they sort of realize that gee, every sale there's Lafitte eighty two. Gee, every sale there sale there's ninety Petrus cases. You know it comes up, uh, and so I think what happened they're still buying them, but they realized. They don't have to chase because likely those wines will be back the next time around. Or they already had it in their cellar from previous. Uh, That's sale. also it. They're probably got a little uh, satiated by uh, by uh, you know the initial flood of what was coming into Hong Kong, and so many of them probably, like you said, got got what they wanted in their cellar. Sometimes I hear about people who are Americans or from other countries working as consultants to buyers in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, a kind of intelligent shift in that direction as people work as consultants who have been in other markets and are like, hey, no, really, uh, Mounier is really good. You should check this out. Or how's that all going down? You know, interesting. I think uh, from what I can tell, I think that influence is probably less from consultants or let's say, you know, like probably less from formal wine consultants mm-hmm. or advisors. That does exist. I think that influence comes more from the social networks that are out there. So what are those like? Yeah, it's uh, what's really quite a lot of fun about spending time in Hong Kong and with the, 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 the connoisseurs in Hong Kong. Uh, it's, they're really one of the, it's really one of the most social uh, and you know, network-influenced markets I've seen. And, so how does that play out? Yeah, you know, basically every night, it, 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 there's not, you know, certainly this can happen in places like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or any any place where there's a lot of wine lovers. But really, Hong Kong is so buzzing. Uh, any night, there could be two, three, four major wine dinners of various collectors at a restaurant. Bring your own bottle or whatever it is, or some theme. And I think that the influence of how uh, the, 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 these collectors are discovering new things probably is more from the circles they're in, you know, the other people they're spending time with. And if if they're at a wine dinner and somebody brings a Mounier Moussigny 96 and says, oh, if you've never had Mounier, you've got to get it. That's the best Moussigny or, or what have you. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, the other people there will make a mental note and likely go chase it. Is there some something wrapped up into that, into the kind of the Asian idea of, of face or public uh, presentation? Uh, are people trying to how I guess we would say keep up with the Joneses, but are are they uh, heavily kind of peer influenced because they want to try to stay with the group in that way? You know, I think that has a lot to do with it. It's sort of the balance of yeah, keeping up with the Joneses, but also there is uh, there is a very earnest and sincere desire for, again, if you're talking in generalizations, for these collectors to really expand their knowledge, expand their experience. It's about taste, too. It it's is about very much about taste. And, taste. and, it, and that's, that's something I think is univer- seems to be universal with most seriously passionate wine people. They, there is that, uh, pardon the pun, thirst for knowledge. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it certainly exists out there. Because so, sometimes I think on this side of uh, the Atlantic, we wonder, is this a bubble? Or is this going to, you know, is this going to go away? But if, if people are making a lifelong commitment to learning more about wine and really have a desire to do that, it doesn't sound like that's a bubble to me. 
I don't think it's a bubble. There might be some elements of the market that could change if certain economic or political situations change. Uh, but the the pa- the passion is there, the desire is there, and it's uh, you might even argue more than at this point any anywhere else in the world. And maybe it is just that you know uh, economically, it relatively speaking, it's you know they're on a better footing right now. But it doesn't seem fleeting. And again, going back to you know the discussion of you know the nature of the market these are it's not really with with the, the core of the hong kong buyers it's not necessarily new you know a lot of a lot obviously for for a number of them it is but the, a lot of these guys have been well i shouldn't just say guys cuz actually a lot of of uh, very passionate female collectors out there but they've been doing it for a long time mm-hmm. decades some of them again traveling the regions going to burgundy bordeaux even italy or or california and you know in their quest to expand their knowledge expand their experience so it's. I don't think it's. If there's a bubble, that would be different than this being a stable market. Um, things can change with China, and that could uh, affect the ability of mainland Chinese to continue to buy wine, uh, uh, or you know other political or economic circumstances. Like I said, could change. But I, I think the buying base will always be there. I remember one time I asked you, you know, is this something that you're going to target to Hong Kong or are you going to sell it in New York because are you going to get a better price for this in Hong Kong? And you said, well, in reality, uh, buying can happen from anywhere over uh, the phone or the yeah. internet. And the Hong Kong buyers are in the New York auctions too. Um, so does that mean that there's, I mean, what does that really mean for pricing? I mean, just because it's so far away. That doesn't mean that there's no price change back home, right? I mean, this home from yeah. New York. Um, the market, you know, we're in such a global market, obviously not just for wine, but everything is, you know, in this information age and with the internet age and, and especially, you know, in the nature of wine with, uh, you know, the, the auction houses and things like Wine Searcher and Parker and all that. Every, it, it, it's, it, it, uh, to, to quote the title of a book I haven't read yet, you know, the world is flat, right? Yeah, yeah. And so for wine, in, in, in terms of the wine market, what we see, um, I think if you really study the numbers, basically pricing seems to be at an uh, uh, sort of equalized between Hong Kong and uh, New York, you could even if you threw London in there, you'd probably find the same thing um, for the wines that are at auction. Yeah, for auction wines. That said, you have to be a little careful because a, a certain auction may generate more excitement. Maybe there's it's a special seller with uh, unusually uh, great provenance or something. People are a little more focused on it, willing to bid a little bit more. For example, I think that's a little bit of what we saw last weekend because it was a special single owner auction, for example, and there were. I think more eyes looking at it, more people interested in it by virtue of the nature of the seller. And it, it, we probably got higher than average prices by virtue of that sale. If that same seller, if we had uh, sold it in New York, probably would, would have gotten the same prices. Hard, hard to say. It's anybody's guess. But again, I think, uh, I think um, um, it has more to do with uh, how excited people get for a given collection, a given sale. That's that has more effect on price differentials than where the where the uh, uh, where the sale is held. That's interesting because you know when you look at the pricing history at auction for a wine, if you have a collection in 
you want to value it and you look at hey these are the auction results i mean that 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 kind of other information is often stripped away and you just see the dollar figure for 82 mouton or whatever yeah. so when people uh research the value of their own sellers how much can they trust the hammer price i mean do they need to factor in several quarters or well interesting you bring that up because that is something you sometimes have to um uh, wrestle with when it comes to some sellers you have to temper expectations and uh i see so people come to you and say like hey we're gonna make a lot of money on this one and you're like right. well maybe right they'll say uh they may look at the last auction and see that you sold x wine at x price that was well above a high estimate and there often is some underlying factor there that can't maybe get captured in just a printout of auction results um and it's not to say that you couldn't achieve that price again, but as you know, uh, when you're setting the prices, you do have to be conscientious when you're looking at the at recent results. If you see something that's unusually high or out of line with what is what you'd expect, there might be a story there, and uh, so you do have to um, you have to be conscientious of that when setting prices, and that is often a conversation we have to have with potential sellers. Is that what moved you guys partly to do auctions in Hong Kong was to get that on the ground kind of feel for the market? Um, a little bit. You know, it, it, it seemed, it, we knew it was a big market and even before doing actual sales there, we'd always had a big buying base mm -hmm. that they were participating in our New York, Los Angeles auctions. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, if you have the auction anywhere and anyone can buy it from anywhere, why need? Why do you need to have it oh. in Hong Kong? Is it to get a sense of what's actually happening in a room? Um, yeah, a little bit that. And it, it's also the feeling that, you know, to really be uh, capitalized on the opportunity there, you have to physically be there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And uh, and especially if you're seeing the competition doing it, and um, you and some big hammer prices coming out of that. You see some big hammer. You realize you, you you know our our decision going you know five years or so ago when we decided to do it was you really have to be there. Mm -hmm. That's the only way to continue to build and serve the market. If you're not, somebody else is going to be there. You may still have the buyers, but you're probably losing the opportunity of expanding your buying base uh, and. You know, taking advantage of a market at that time when we went in was had a, had much more opportunity than what was happening in the U.S. at the time. Because also you have to look at what was going on um, in 2008, right? Which is right when we it kind of saved the market. Actually, Hong Kong kind mm -hmm. of and the Chinese buying sort of saved the market. You know, Lehman went down uh, September of 2008. Our first sale was October 2008 in Hong Kong, for example. And even though that was very uh, uh, sort of a scary time and you know the, in retrospect uh you know our, th that even that auction was affected by what was going on it's still it, it wasn't that long until um so much was diverted not diverted so much business was happening in hong kong that if we hadn't if we weren't doing the hong kong auctions if we weren't on the ground there we would have been missing an, an opportunity we wouldn't have gotten some of the collections we sold, we wouldn't have had those kind of sales. It was certainly a period of time where you couldn't have just done the same auction in New York. How important is the rarity factor to the Chinese collector? Yeah, very important. And it's it's become um, increasingly important. And I think that's what we're seeing with the burgundy buying activity. There is this realization of exclusivity, smaller production. And as uh, the market, and even as the, the mainland Chinese are learning more about this, you know, realizing it's 
uh, it may be more interesting to have a bottle of Latash and a bottle of Lafitte because uh, the production uh, 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 the c- production comparisons are so much so much different. You know, it may be again going back to what you were m- mentioning about you know the cultural element of showing face or keeping up with the Joneses. That 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 as long as um, their circles may appreciate what a bottle of Latash means and the rarity of that they're probably probably going to start buying or continue to buy that more than let's say Lafitte for example but we haven't seen a lot of movement into Italy uh where there's obviously some small scale producers mm. as well why do you think that might be i mean some of the producers i see in Italy in the chinese market are some of the larger producers so what is keeping them back from being say big barolo collectors what's the difference you know that's a that's a good question and maybe it's there just needs to be uh some moment where uh, you know, a tipping point where there's more appreciation for these wines from the perspective of, oh boy, some big collectors who I go to dinner with are starting to bring Barolos, starting to bring Monfortino or Giacosa. I better, I better stock my cellar with those as well. I think there needs to be that tipping point. It, there is interest, and there's there are uh, certainly a lot of Hong Kong based buyers buying these wines, but it, there's nowhere. It's nowhere close to the you know the fervor excitement of Burgundy. Uh, Bordeaux, or even even starting to see with Champagne or some Rhones a little bit, but I, I think they just need that sort of tipping point. They need a reason, uh, a reason to 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 start chasing these wines. I don't think it's lack of appreciation, but certainly lack of probably understanding, knowledge, and then uh, maybe social incentive, if you will. So back in the United States, uh, it seems like Bordeaux has really made an exodus from restaurant wine lists. You just don't see it that often at the restaurant level. A lot of sommeliers say it's just not what the customers are asking for, uh, except for certain specialized, uh, more classic restaurants. Um, yet it's still a big mainstay of the auction market. How do you explain that dichotomy where mm. people aren't necessarily going out to drink it with dinner, but yet it's still selling for big hammer at auction? What's going on? Bordeaux is um, the nature of Bordeaux. It's it's always been sort of the center of the fine wine market, not just auction, but it, it's always sort of set the benchmark for relative values uh, when you think of the first growths and obviously you know Petrus and Chevel and what have you. you know the big names. It's it's um, there's it's also one you know in terms of fine wine in terms of the probably the again going you know the most understood of fine wine regions given its history given its sort of uh tends to be the gateway for a lot of uh interested wine collectors so you, you it's easy to start with bordeaux and uh, wrap your head around that and then you start discovering other things so i think that, you know it, it bordeaux still does very very well at auction because there's just such an enormous buying base and there, there it is still being and there's also a sense of um a, probably a better um understanding about quote-unquote market values for something like bordeaux versus anything else it bordeaux tends to be more commodity like people know what they should pay for it or they know that's a good price for that there's more of a sense of that uh, you can't you got to be careful. I think the line of demarcation is probably 1982 and younger when you're starting to talk about commodity-like behavior for mm-hmm. Bordeaux prices. You know, so older wines, anything, and especially if you're starting to get to like 60, 1961 and older, and the good vintages, good producers, it has uh, value has so much more to do with how the condition of the bottle, the nature of the collection that it, from which it came. Um, so going back to you know the the current values. It's almost that it's almost that 
you know, Bordeaux sort of sets the tone because it's it is sort of the commodity benchmark uh, wine region of the fine wine world, and there's there's um, a lot of buyers I would say that are willing to pay certain amounts for let's say their eighty two Mouton uh, if it if it trades let's say I don't know ten thousand U S a case. There's a lot of buyers that would just w- willing to buy any any cases that price because there, there's a there's a concept of that's the market value and that's or, or rather that's that's like a good deal for it let's mm-hmm, just put mm-hmm. it that way i don't know if i'm making a whole lot of sense but they know what it sold for in the past yeah. and you're like oh that seems less than that let's snap that up right now and maybe the psychology is that if if they're getting a good deal on it they'd be willing to to, to pay x amount um so for bordeaux you see you, you sort of see much more stable market much more consistency with with hammer prices uh you know going back to the what you're saying about the restaurants, you know, it'd be hard for me to speculate on that. I think maybe for restaurants, you you know, you would have a better view of this, but um, I think the prices have gotten higher. And maybe with your more casual wine consumer who's wants a nice dinner with their wife at, you know, a nice restaurant, it's who's, uh, you know, relatively knowledgeable about wine. When you start looking at the relative prices of where Bordeaux has uh, been taken, let's say, and with the availability of so many great wines, you know, I think a lot of uh, the more casual wine enjoyers are starting to, or have been branching, branching are realizing it's not not where they want to put their you know wine wine dollars. Basically, has the auction market also opened up a little bit? I mean, besides Burgundy and the Rhone, has have things uh, been added to collections for sale uh, that maybe wouldn't have been twenty years ago? Yeah, um, there's. The, I wouldn't say necessarily new recently any new regions that have been catching on at auction. For example, we're we're not at a, a point where let's say great Argentinian or Chilean wines are have any impact at auction. Although maybe once in a while you'll see something that's very unusual. I, I think what what you're really seeing more is um, you know the regions that have been represented at auction. You're just seeing more excitement and enthusiasm. For example, Burgundy. And champagne as well. The, the champagne, the excitement for champagne is not necessarily new, but I, I do remember when I was first getting in the business about ten years or so ago. I was, uh, it happened to be I was lucky to discover vintage champagne and realizing, wow, it's amazing how wonderful this age is. And I was again learning a lot about wine at the time, but really kind of caught on to that. And I was shocked that you could get Dom Perignon thirty years old for not much more, if or even the same price as practically a bottle on the shelf at your local liquor store, right? And now th- that's obviously changed a lot. You know, a lot of guys came in the market who also equally were discovering champagne or, or knew about champagne and, and were starting to sweep this up. So that, those days are gone. But I, I'd say that's the dynamic I've noticed, which is uh, more of these regions outside of Bordeaux getting a lot more interest. But champagne is always traded at auction, but now it's, you know, the prices are just because it does seem like there's some hardcore champagne buyers, without who, question, who are looking for any bottles out there and will scoop them up for high prices. Yeah, champagne is definitely. Um, it may have, it may have calmed down a little bit, but the but it's still uh, it's still generating a lot of attention and more much more globally than ever. It used to be dominated much more by uh, the U.S. market, especially New York. Uh, the New York market, but there's uh, I'm st- we're certainly seeing in the Far East much more excitement for you know rare one-off bottle uh, great great champagnes. 
So who's in the auction room these days? I mean, with the incredible price escalation over the last 25 years, I think, you know, worldwide for different wines, but certainly in the staples of the auction market, who comes in? Who's in, who's sitting there uh, with a paddle? Uh, are we still seeing people who want to start a collection, casual collectors coming in, or who who is it in front of you? That's a very good question. Again, it becomes a discussion of the differences between Hong Kong and New York. Um, not so much that there's different kinds of buyers in in the in the very in those sales rooms, but in Hong Kong, we can, we can have as much as 300 people in a room. We have to get venues that are wow. much bigger and able to accommodate larger crowds. And part of it is the nature of uh, the buyers; they're less. Um, maybe more apprehensive about absentee bidding, meaning putting oh, the, I see, I meaning see. putting the bids in the sale. They, and I think the culture there's part of uh, the enjoyment of being at an auction and, and bidding. There's sort of a bit of a uh, you know a, a game to it, I guess, or or, or something that's uh, a lot of buyers find interesting. So you you have in Hong Kong, it's really driven much more by the room, and and in the room, it's predominantly. Uh, the end collector bidding, but you have a lot of trade buying. You have resellers, brokers, retailers, um, or even consultants, as as you were mentioning. But the core of the the, the core of the buying base is the private collector. So you know, coming back to New York, uh, it's you know the, the the composition of the the buyer in the room is about the same. But you have it's it's much more driven by the bids on the book. Uh, there's much more comfort with absentee bidding, understanding of the process. Maybe people also have less time or uh, desire to sit around in an auction room all day. Uh, but um, I, I think in New York, you see the, the, the we, we get good crowds, but you're, you're also getting more with people who, you know, they, they enjoy just kind of hanging out for a day, maybe bringing a couple good bottles. You know, we serve a great lunch wherever we are. Yeah, the food's good. Yeah, the food's great. And they, and they like watching the action. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, it just it's a, becomes a little bit of a pastime for, I think, quite a number of the buyers that, that, that come out. Uh, so that's that's generally what we see in the auction rooms. Do you find as an auctioneer that your job is really to kind of uh, almost be a conductor of that excitement that can happen in a room? I mean, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, no, being an auctioneer is a lot of fun. You, you, you know, things you have to keep in mind is just uh, sort of keeping the pace and keep and being you know being very aware of uh, maybe who showed up for yeah. what what wines and and being very aware of who's actually there, very active and and wanting wanting to. Uh, uh, buy some wines. Uh, you also have to be very conscientious. Another element of this is we do um, live bidding through the internet during the sale. So there's, you know, in addition to what's happening in the auction room physically, there's a number of people online logging in from their office or home, what have you, watching the sale live. Literally, we have a video feed, audio feed, and you know the ability for registered bidders to to bid um, live during the sale. So you also have to be, as an auctioneer, very conscientious of what's happening on the internet. And that's a little more tricky because you have no, you know, with in the room you can make eye contact with somebody. You know when somebody is, you know, perked up for a certain lot or a certain section or a certain collection. I've and, seen auctioneers call guys out like, "Hey, Joe, aren't you interested in lot? Is yeah. this your thing?" You well, know, that, that kind of stuff. That's the other part, and that's actually fun because, yeah, you know, it's a, ultimately a fairly small market of people, many of which you know and have personal relationships with, or you know what kind of wines you like. So that you know, as an auctioneer for wine. Uh, uh, there that that comes into play too. Sometimes you know somebody may be interested in something they're not paying attention or not realizing it's a good value, and they'll they'll sort of take your suggestion. Uh, 
Is there a, a flow to the rhythm? Like sometimes do you give a short hammer or a long hammer depending on where you think the enthusiasm is? Like sometimes do you draw it out longer trying to build a crescendo of interest and sometimes like, oh, let's move on on this lot. You know? Yeah, without question. You, you, you have to have a feel for uh, the nature of the lot or let's say a collection. There, there, there's, it's, it is um, an auction, a good auctioneer needs to have a feel for, for the tempo and the pace. And there are times where you, you can sort of, you, you realize you just need to keep moving. Maybe let's just, you know, a good example would be a uh, commodity like original case quantities of Bordeaux. It's not often somebody is just showing up to go crazy for, let's say, you know, vintage 2000 or 2003 second and third gross. That stuff sells and it does well. But in, let's say, New York, that's classically uh, wines that are driven by absentee bidding, trade bidding, if you will, or people that just kind of know a spot price. Your, your, your absentee bidding is going to be really strong on that. It doesn't mean you ignore the room and you, you may get bids in the room. But that's an example of something. You're, you don't linger for minutes on a case of 2003 Code Estranel in these days. Not that it's not an exciting wine, but it, there's not 20 people showing up for that. Now, on the flip side, something like uh, we sold a case of 47 Chevel Blanc in Hong Kong. Pretty good uh, one. Pretty good wine. And this was a, you know, it had extraordinary provenance, had been released from uh, the Chateau 2007 with, you know, a beautiful picture in the Cali. You know, you know that that's more likely to have uh, people who showed up literally just for that. They may have even just came for a lot like that, just for an example. And so you realize something like that comes up. You have to make sure people are paying attention, play it up a bit, make sure you're giving a lot of time for people to think about it. Also, when you're talking about dollar amounts that are that high, sometimes people want to, uh, ponder the next bidding increment and you, you want to give them you know ample time for that in the end you still have to keep things moving you can't uh, you, you you have to have a sense of when the bidding has stopped put the hammer down and move on how big is the private collector market i mean really what is how many people are we talking about like serious collectors i mean zaki's is a go-to for a lot of the collectors i know so i feel like you would have a sense of the answer to this question how many people are, are there out there in the world that seriously collect wine it's a good question, and it's it's um, more than you might realize. Yet it's still a very, relatively sm speaking, small market. You know, if you had to throw a number out there, and I may be be off, I would probably say somewhere in the neighborhood of. Again, I guess it also depends on what you really define as you know, quote unquote, you know, fine wine collector. But you know, probably in the neighborhood of let's say serious wine buyers, serious sellers, you know. Two, three, four thousand, five thousand people worldwide. That doesn't mean that's the number of total buyers we've ever had. But in terms of you know truly uh, serious sellers and serious buyers, probably that neighborhood. Again, so worldwide, three thousand people, but millions of dollars in sales, right? without question. I mean, in the time that you've been at Zaki's, it was something like a half billion uh, uh, in total hammer. Right? Yeah, is that true? Not, since um, um, since about two thousand five, when I sort of took the helm of Zaki's auctions. We've done, you know, coming up through, you know, through the through, you know, currently just about a half billion worth at uh at auction alone. Um roughly. And that's not even including the retail side of it. Exactly. See Zaki's the other side of this, it's not just the let's just say the three thousand odd people who you call serious wine buyers. Um there's a lot of you know, a lot of this wine is going to restaurant lists or, you know, resellers, retailers, uh so you know, an absolute number of how many buyers are are there out there of the of these kind of wines? It's it, you know it's much much more than three thousand. So 
Is there a difference between an auction house that really focuses on wine and an auction house that is more of an all-arounder, might do art, might do antiques? Are there any differences when it comes to a wine auction? Oh, that's a good question. You know, and it's something that um, certainly gets brought up. Uh, you know, what, what we... What it, it's hard to speak from the perspective, let's say, of Sotheby's or Christie's, and you know their departments have great people, very knowledgeable, very, you know, very dedicated to what they do, and they do have obviously departments dedicated to wine with wine people. Uh, the difference would be though with what we do, we we are only wine, you know, and and we've been focused on wine for literally generations, Zachies. Now, you know, in terms of auction, we've been in the auction business since the mid nineties. Um, you know, we'd like to think that we're because of that focus, and again, um, the nature of the organizations like Azaki's versus, you know, a major international auction house where a wine department is, uh, you know, a very, very small component of that, there, it, it gives us some advantages, you know, not just to, you know, us as how we can run a business or a business model, but advantages to our clientele as well. You know, there's a lot of uh, our ability to really focus on our clients, you know, focus on the customer service aspect, whether it's somebody going through the process of selling a seller, or of course, you know, big buyers building a seller. You know, we'd like to think that um, uh, being focused on wine only gives us a lot of advantages uh, versus the big international companies. Sometimes, uh, especially in the last couple of years, I read about uh, this or that concern about, you know, uh, is this a, a genuine bottle? But uh, in the in the things that have come up, I don't see Zachy's name bandied about uh, in allegations uh, often or if at all. I wonder, are you guys doing something different that has allowed you to kind of keep yourself above the, above the fray? Or is it just good luck on Zachy's part? Or why don't I see you guys in the, the kind of court documents that tend to get uh, put up on the internet these days? Well, you bring up a important subject. You know, the you know, problems that you're discussing in wine have been around for a long time. They're always going to be around one, uh, you know, one manifesting itself one way or another. You know, have we changed? Have we altered? Not, not, it's, that's hard to say. I think you always have to be on your toes and you have to be very knowledgeable and aware about what's going on or what potentially could be going on. Um, and um, a big part of what we do is that work in doing the cataloging work, the inspecting work, not just physically looking at, you know, the bottles and, and gaining some comfort about, uh, you know, is this wine what it purports to be? There, there's a, a lot that starts before that. It's who are you dealing with? What do you know about the seller and the source? Uh, one, you know, a lot of our, one, one advantage we have also, uh, you know, maybe going back to the previous question is that, you know, Zachy's, we've been, we've been, in the business since the forties and been dealing with wine since the early sixties. That's kind of a longer story because it involves New York changing of New York laws, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so, and, 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 you know, really basically selling fine wine to the sixties, a lot of the clients we deal with, and especially on the, the sellers we get are people have been buying wines from Zachy's, you know, families whose, you know, father or grandfather, what have you, uh, have been collecting for a long, long time. You know, we we know uh, you you, you want to know who you're dealing with first and foremost. That's certainly something that's never changed. You know, the things that do change is even um, you know with the amount of wine that gets that, that gets traded in the market and at auction or through brokers or retailers, or what have you. It doesn't mean that some family that has been buying wine from you since the '60s, every bottle is potentially fine. So you just say, okay, great. We know you. You've been dealing with us forever. We don't 
we're not going to look at anything. We, we inspect every single bottle, even if it's a, a case of 2000, uh, an unopened case of 2003 code ester. Now we're, you know, we're popping the lid on the uh, wood case, looking at every bottle, you know, partially, you never know, maybe somebody, it's really 11 bottles, not 12, and you've got to look at everything. But we, we're, we're physically inspecting every single bottle. And it's not just to get the um, condition elements correct for the catalog. Are there issues with is the label ripped is the fill level a little low is there a problem with the cork you, you need to look for all that stuff but it's also having an eye towards anything else that might be problematic how complicated is that i mean i feel like uh there's so many different labels wineries change their label over time uh, maybe they did it differently this year maybe the importer looks different that time i mean how how many variables are involved in authenticating a bottle it's um okay i mean first technically to be clear, we don't provide a service of authentication per se. Oh, oh okay, okay. Well, you know that's a that's a di- whole different subject. But what it is is, you know, we're, we we you wouldn't proceed with a bottle at auction that you're not comfortable with. But you you bring up a very very important question, and especially going back with older bottlings, and especially regions like Bordeaux. Uh, I'm sorry, much more rather Burgundy or. Uh, Rhone or what have you, you know, you I, I've literally seen uh, it, it, one. There's a lot of misconceptions. There's there's a lot less fact about uh, uh, older bottlings than I think the casual wine um, connoisseur or collector realizes. And I, I've seen, for example, Romani Conti from the '60s from a seller from which it was purchased on release unequivocally, even with records to back that up. Where let's say it was it was six bottles or you know four or six bottles with sequential serial numbers, but there's two different varieties of glass. Everything else was exactly the same. There's no question about the legitimacy of these bottles. And there's people out there that would say, oh well, it should all have the same glass. You right. know, it's not that black and white. Like maybe they ran out of bottles and they needed to buy some new bottles of it. But then one thing you do, you know, you, you don't just uh, you know in this day and age. Thankfully, I think a lot of the producers are becoming. A little bit more open if you ask the questions, but you could go to DRC perhaps. You at least try to ask a question. Maybe they do or don't have a, have the facts, but you you do you do try to get some independent confirmation perhaps. You it know, just seems difficult because it's like, are you if you find the information out, are you supplying that information to the bad guys? Like you know, if I if I go online and I set up a database of how all the labels supposed to look for this particular yeah. wine for twenty years, it can't the bad guy do that too? I I wonder how you, you know what I mean. Like how do you yeah. create? You know, you just have to keep it in house. Like this doesn't well, no one will know. You know, I don't know. You know, um, if we get some criticism from some elements of the wine world. It, it's that there's a perception it's a little opaque what we're doing, but it is partially for these reasons. Mm-hmm. That and, seems fair. Yeah, and you have to be very careful, and especially with the uh, level of technology available today, the quality of being able to reproduce labels, even corks, what have you. Why, you know, why give that information away? There, it, it, and it's. Like I said, this is a problem that's been around a long time. It, it, it exists today, and it's always going to be, it's always going to be a concern. So you're absolutely right. You know, if you have, it would be uh, maybe not wise to sort of reveal your database of everything you've learned as much as you'd like to. That's that may only perpetuate the problem. 
So uh, let's swing back to the actual market and, and how it's working. Is it still based on points uh, when it comes to Bordeaux or no? Uh, points are very influential. Uh, I think maybe um, it depends on the depends on the collector and the and the and the and the buyer. Uh, points probably uh, have become a little less. Of a driver than than they were a decade ago, but it's still important. A hundred points from Parker for whatever the wine is is going to move that wine, whether you like it or not. Whether it's uh, you know to some people's like it's going to get people's interest. They're going to say, "Wow, Parker scored is a hundred points." You know, that's definitely going to bump the market. But is that what it takes? Ninety or above? Not necessarily. You know, maybe Bordeaux is a little bit different. But I when you look at the regions, um, you know, Burgundy, Italy. I believe the people, you know, the real connoisseurs of those wines aren't as influenced by the scoring. It may help, but it's not going to, if, if for whatever reason, not to, not that this is the situation, let's say Alan Meadows gave 89 points to Latosh 2000, whatever, 10, whatever. Yeah. I, I don't think that's going to tank the market for Latosh for something that's, it may, people may wonder why did he do that and Maybe he, maybe it merited it, but it's. I don't think that would affect the price of that Latosh, for example. Uh, so you know, I, I I think it I think it becomes. Um, I, I think also what you've seen is a little less uh, over, especially over the last ten years. You know, Parker's influence obviously is still great, but he's scaled back. He's doing uh, less less uh, coverage than he was. He's focusing on, I guess, the Rhone and Bordeaux now. Uh, you know, Antonio Galoni has taken over some regions and he's great and, you know, he's a good writer and what have you. But there's also, I think the, the by virtue of that, the scoring effect, it's been dissipated a little bit. I think, uh, I, I would like to think that uh, maybe the experienced wine buyer is leaning on their own palate or their own experience more than just what they're reading or what some critic is saying. It also seems like over the last few years, the critical uh, voices have niched. Like you, you mentioned, Meadows really focused in on Burgundy. Uh, we see people focusing in on German Riesling. We see people focusing in on Champagne, uh, what have you. Are you finding the need to quote uh, different sources than, say, the big historical two in the catalog? Or is that just not necessary at this time? Oh, without question. Uh, we've There's a number of sources we'll quote. As long as they, as long as they have... Uh, you know the professional reputation and the and the legitimacy in terms of being a real voice in the in the wine world. Well, you know we we quote a lot of people and and we have for a long time. Uh, you know, obviously the Parkers and the Antonio Galonis and the Alan Meadows, but even guys like John Gilman. You know, he's a great writer and you know very interesting perspective. Uh, um, um, you know, starting even you know Peter Leem, you know, with his champagne coverage, uh, and and actually, so it is. You know, it is kind of refreshing that there is tends to be a a, a focus on more of specialization, because it may be unrealistic to think that one person could realistically cover with the kind of depth uh, all these regions that you know Parker was doing. God bless him, because that's you know hard freaking work to do one. Even to do one tasting, you know, for a week in Burgundy, and, and all the you know producers you may hit, and trying to wrap that up into notes and a write up that's a, you know intelligent, that's that's hard enough. But to think that somebody was could do that with so many regions like he was doing, it, it may, you know, the the, the other uh, shortcoming of that approach may be that it, it may be hard to really 
do every do all those regions as well or as an in-depth or capture everything that is really uh, you know ultimately meaningful to the to the end consumer so uh i like i like that there's more specialization and yeah we we have no problem using whatever you know voice seems to make sense for a given region has traction Yeah. yeah um so you know a lot of times uh people talk about sommeliers building great wine lists at restaurants uh and that seems entirely fair um, but I notice a great sommelier, say, in the Massachusetts market and a great sommelier in the New York market might build a very different list. And uh, some of that difference to me has to do not just with clientele, but also with the auction availability mm-hmm. in the market and that you can build back vintage depth. How much do you see uh, the auction market in New York uh, as, as having been like the kind of secret partner or the not even secret partner, but partner in building great wine lists in the New York market. Yeah. It's interesting. You focus in on New York because more in here in New York than anywhere else, there's much more activity with the, the sommeliers or wine directors using auction as a, as a source for, for building the list. And especially for the reasons you mentioned, getting great back vintages and at prices that are, you know, justify, being able to put them on the list with a you know markup that still makes sense, but a wine lover is going to come in the restaurant and, and find some great wines that maybe they wouldn't have access to anywhere else. And at prices that, that can be very approachable. So here in New York, more than anywhere else, more than Hong Kong, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or, or, uh, or even overseas, much more restaurant participation. Uh, there's a number I won't name names, but you know there's a lot of restaurants that are, are great clients of ours who who are uh, you know work to build their lists uh, you know from our auctions, which is great. Um, so New York's a little unique. Maybe it is because um, obviously there's legalities at play, what have you. But you know a guy in Boston may not have the same ability to do um, what a New York wine director Smollier is doing so that that's going to account for some of that difference but you know it is it is great that they're using us as a way of of building a great wine list because i mean uh do you ever wonder like hey where's my credit for you know helping with the great construction of the amazing list you know i mean i guess it's uh seems uh you you know to say yes you'd sound like a jerk but i mean do you ever wonder i mean you know what i mean like uh um i i wouldn't say look at it that way at all i think it's you know we love bringing great collections to market and if it's yeah. If if it's an opportunity for a restaurant to use it as a way to build a wine list, if it's a private collector to get you know wines that they want for their seller, they haven't been able to find. That's satisfying enough. I, you know, I, I will say I think that one thing I've enjoyed a lot about it is you know the relationship aspect of it made made a lot of a lot a lot of friends in the wine uh, or sorry the restaurant uh, business, especially here in New York. You get to know the people, and it's I like to come in and. Uh, you know, take advantage of the great wine list and the yeah. Certainly, and, I've seen yeah. you in restaurants. Before. Yeah, so you know, I like that aspect of it. I don't. I, I would not. I, I think the the hard work and the diligence is certainly on the shoulders of those building the list and not me. So, so let's talk a little bit about you, though. I mean, when you go out, what are you drinking? You personally, Michael Jessen, yeah. uh, what do you like to drink these days? Pretty broad uh, taste, but you know, tend more towards old world. And I, like a lot of people, love. Love Burgundy. Won't pass up a great bottle of red or white Burgundy. But uh, drink a lot of great Champagne. Uh, Northern Italy is close to my heart. Love the wines of Piedmont. Uh, I love uh, another sweet spot for me. Are older California wines, especially you know pre 
1980s, you know, the more classic style uh, and some of, you know, just a great, you know, great era for California's, you know, the 60s and 70s, especially even going back to bottlings of the 40s and 50s, if you can find them. Is that still underappreciated at auction, like old California? Not as much as it used to be. And yeah, people you, are starting to catch on. Yeah, without question. It used to be uh, an area where you could get uh, even, let's say, a, you know, full case of old Phelps Isley from the 70s at, you know, a fraction of what a, a similar Bordeaux may have been. In, in, or even Young Phelps Isley. Or even Young Phelps, right, good point, at a di- fraction of Young Phelps Isley. You know, and these wines are just marvelous. And a lot of them, uh, you know, especially if you're talking about, you know, mid-late 70s, early 80s, uh, a lot of these wines are really starting to show well now. Right. Uh, and they were wines that were built to last. They may not have been as, you know, you're not, you're, you're talking about pre-Parker era, so they weren't, they weren't, didn't have the pressures of, you know, important critics coming around every year scoring them you had you know it was a much different different world for for northern california at the time and you know a lot of these wines are fabulous even it's worth taking pot shots on producers you've never heard of a lot of properties that just don't exist anymore that you know made fabulous wines and you you know for 20 30 bucks even you can you might come across something that could really uh could be impressive so i like you know those those wines are great but like you say i I think the if i'm not mistaken uh antonio put uh, some write-up out recently about going back to some, you know, older vintages of, of California. I, I, I think what we'll see is a spotlight is, is sort of being uh, pointed at, uh, at this area. And we think we're going to see prices continue to rise. It, it's already started, but I, I think it's going to become even more unapproachable. And for good, good reason. They're great. They're good wines, yeah. Uh, so let me ask you, you know, we get a lot of younger people listening to this show who are trying to make their career in wine. Who's the guy that's successful in the auction market, or what would what did you think in your own mind when you're like, "Hey, this is for me, auctions. I'm not going to do a sommelier. I'm not going to do retail. I'm into this thing. What mm-hmm. is it? What is it that appeals about auctions?" Yeah, auction is very, very unique. Uh, I guess any you know the wine industry, the wine business is shockingly broad. If you think about the different potential paths there are, whether you're, like you say, going the restaurant route and doing small yay, you know, uh, small yay road, or if you're you know, joining a distributor or a retailer, uh, or there's being a winemaker, you know, there's just so many different elements of the wine business. That's what's beautiful about it. So if you are considering making a jump as a career, you, re- you should be, you should think about what facet fits you best, what, what facet do you think you would have the most success at? In my own experience, I was drawn towards auction because, uh, well, you know, at the time, you know, it's going back about 10 years ago or so, sort of realized the only way I'm really going to have access to these wines is if I'm working with them every day. Yeah. You know, or at least anytime and, and soon. And that's the reality. Right. Like you're opening up 61s and... Sure. You know, very, very fortunate that have a lot of exposure to that. And it's not at all that we're sitting around the office all day, right, drinking magnums of 61 latour oh you're not that's well, kind of a bummer to hear that because i actually kind of had to myth that you actually guys were. We, we are i'm just saying that because I, yeah, yeah, I don't want yeah, you to bother exactly. us exactly i don't want you to come around so, no. <laughs> but uh no we, we do you, you get a lot of access and exposure to and i just was really interested in wine at, at a level of i really want to know about the great wine so that's part of it but i also uh you know my my background was more you know business and markets and what have you know the idea of this being uh, you know something traded at auction as, as a real means that that dr- drove the market, drove the values, drove the prices. It was just exciting. And, you know, when I first moved to New York before I was in the wine biz, I started going to auctions. Um, and it was just it was just really fascinating. And so I, I was kind of drawn towards it because I like that element. And, you know, I've personally 
I think it helped you know, uh, helped me be successful because it's not just, it wasn't just about the wine and having experience and knowledge and, and, and loving the wine, but I really liked the, the, the business element of it. And what I, that the, the third part about it that didn't fully realize or appreciate, but certainly, uh, didn't take long to appreciate. It's actually, even the auction world is much more, more, more than, uh, it being a business of people buying and selling wine, a marketplace, or even it being about, the fine wine, it's its really a people and like a customer service business. And I love that. I mean, yeah, so you have to be a real people person. Uh, and you really have to enjoy uh, working with people, whether it's, you know, sellers coming to market, needing to sell a, you know, family seller, or, or it's big buyers who, you know, they, they are, they have the means and they're getting interested in wine. They want somebody to help guide them. You know, you have to be willing and, and love that aspect of it also. And I, I happen to. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's the auction business in a nutshell. It's not for everybody. It's a very grueling, grinding business. A lot of travel, uh, a lot of deadlines that are very, very hard to uh, meet. And yeah, it, like it, when you have an auction, curtain goes up. Or that's it. It's a show. That, that yeah. thing published, every, right? Everything like revolves around that. Getting a catalog out, getting the collections in. There's, it's, uh, you, know, you have to really be on top of the details. Tiny little oversights can lead to huge problems huge if problems, you're not careful. Right? So you, know, you have to have a lot of energy, stamina, and you have to have a good head on your shoulders. You, know, you have to be able to think quickly and, and, and what have you. But it, but it, it is fun. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're lucky. We have a great team. We've, we've built our, 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 when I first joined Zachy's auctions, it was maybe, gosh, I don't know, a total of six people or so, including me. Now we're, you know, we have a global business th- between 35, 40 people, including a, you know, a office in Hong Kong with six, seven people. You know, it's, ama- it's been amazing to watch that. And we've, we've been lucky to find the, the, you know, the right kind of people who fit that, fit that mold. You really have to wear a lot of hats. Michael Jessen on the show today. Thank you so much, Michael, for speaking to us about uh, your role at Zaki's Wine Auctions. Thanks, Levy. Good being here. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.